Okay, so really happy to welcome on the show a guest who is Group Head of Legal and Compliance at DBS Bank, uh, Lam Chi Kin. I'm fairly sure people would have heard of DBS Bank if they haven't. It's a leading financial services group headquartered out of Singapore, but actually operates across um, 18 markets across almost the whole, whole of Asia. The interesting thing about DBS beyond its scale, beyond its geography, is that it, it's pretty world-renowned uh, as a leader in, in digital and innovation. I know you were named uh, world's best digital bank by Euromoney, won several other awards just around innovation more generally, and of course been playing a leading role in supporting the Singapore government's forays in, into blockchain and distributed ledger technology but as early as 2016. So very much uh, uh, an early mover, and we're going to get into why. Uh, and in particular, there's been some really interesting kind of cross-industry collaborations that you guys have headed with the Monetary Authority there in Singapore around clearing settlements and payments. Beyond all that about DBS, I think you yourself are just a really interesting guest to have on board. I think when we're talking off air, you describe yourself as um, kind of this this geek, uh, this gamer, people that, that somebody that's been exploring immersive worlds. And at the same time, clearly somebody that is highly commercial uh, and very experienced executive. So I'm um, looking forward to uh, hearing how you uh, wear those two hats. And, um, and and more recently, you wrote a really interesting white paper looking specifically at business models in the metaverse. And so naturally, as the metaverse show, these are things that we're, we're really excited to explore. So welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us, Jamie. That must be one of the best introductions I got. <laughs> I'm well briefed. I'm well briefed. <laughs> and and just, to, just to emphasize the point, right? I think I'm going to do my best to try to you know, handle this dichotomy of, uh, you know, an individual who's uh, actually been playing computer games since I was probably conscious <laughs> and, and really trying to explore uh, alternate realities and immersive worlds, whether it is purely psychological in written form or in pictorial form or now as we have it in, in virtual reality or augmented reality. I think it's really, really exciting. And yet remembering that I've got a day job as well where I'm managing, you know, legal and regulatory risk for a very, um, how you say, very credential. And look, I think this is a really interesting thing about the timing for the metaverse now because of course, it's a, a couple of decades old now um, as a as a concept, you know, out, out of sci-fi. But as it's becoming a reality, we now have people like yourselves who are, you know, native to the concepts, to who've been playing around with immersive technologies, who are gamers, and are now in very senior positions of power in in large organisations. And so, it's interesting to think of that as an inflection point where perhaps. Even a decade ago, uh, you would have been an outsider or be considered an outsider um, in, in the context of uh, of these organizations. So let's just get into your background a little bit. Let's unpack some of the things that you described there. It'd be great to get to know you a little bit better, as you say, both as a coder, as, as a gamer, and then also understand a little bit more about your role at uh, DBS. And in particular, I guess, how this remit allows you to be exploring things like the metaverse and its business models. The slightly geeky part, I think I probably started uh, gaming with uh, TRS-80 computers, <laughs> tape drives, playing role-playing games. And I think that probably is like the genesis of a lot of stuff that we see here, right? Adopting a persona that is not necessarily the same as your physical uh, human persona, but adopting that persona in a sense, a digital representation of an alternate reality. 
And of course, the senses that I engaged uh, in, in that way is at best sight and maybe some tactile senses, certainly not the immersive experiences that we have seen technology enhance over the years. Right? So we've seen the development of incredibly good graphics technology interfaces with computers have improved. Uh, the visual component has become much, much better. Spatial sound has come into play. Um, the assets that we acquire in digital realities have now become uh, exchangeable or transactable, uh, even while being recorded in those alternate realities. So I think what's totally exciting to me is the kid who fell in love <laughs> with this idea that you could take a persona and go into an immersive alternate reality is seeing that immersive alternate reality becoming better and better and more immersive and more engaging to the sensory experience that I want as a human. I, I, I just love that, right? So the reason I suppose I suppose I'm so engaged from a from a human or individual perspective is, is that story. Then I'm privileged to have a job where in a sense my role fundamentally is to manage risk. Uh, but also to try to support the bank in the development of um, uh, the strategic objectives of the bank. And clearly the bank has put a lot into blockchain technology and blockchain technology branches off into a few use cases, right? Obviously one of the use cases is digital assets, but the other use case is uh, the world of Web3 denominated uh, assets and uh, immersive realities that could be associated with Web3. I recognize here, Jamie, we're just um, throwing a few words around. And so maybe it might be useful also for me to just spend a little bit of time explaining exactly what I mean by a reference to, let's say, uh, Web3 or Metaverse or immersive reality, right? So, so uh, I like to explain it this way that, you know, you probably have one version of a definition of Metaverse, which is anchored on social media. You probably have another version which is not necessarily the same, which is anchored on the idea of Web3 DeFi denominated, blockchain denominated uh, alternate realities. And you probably have another version which comes from computer games, uh, which is basically not necessarily Web3 centered and also not necessarily social media anchored in terms of the business model, right? It's in a sense, the, the pure idea of the role-playing game, uh, which is this. So my idea of the metaverse is basically actually all these, but I'll use specific words to distinguish between Web3, distinguish between blockchain, distinguish between, and I mean those things in very specific ways. So hopefully it sets up the context for the, for the subsequent conversations we're going to have. Yes, yeah, so I was, I was going to ask, on definition of, of metaverse, open metaverse, Web3, as you say, people have different perspectives, organizations have different perspectives. And in some ways, the metaverse as a buzzword has kind of gone out of yeah. fashion again, much to, uh, you know, much to my upset. But it's something that we stick with. We still find it a very useful framing for our decade-long thesis about how we see Web3 making impact. And so it'd be interesting to just kind of build on that a little bit more, actually, how you see these three things unifying and, and whether that's a personal perspective or an institutional one. Let me perhaps answer this from a personal perspective and also maybe at this, this angle, right? That as a believer in the promise and the social and psychological value of being able to you know, experience things that, you know, otherwise as a human with your normal physical limitations, you couldn't experience. Uh, I find that fundamentally compelling. And as a believer in that, to then see some of the perhaps advertising or 
tub-thumping uh, behaviour associated with um, perhaps some social media-centred metaverse narratives. That was something that perhaps, you know, maybe even we needed. We needed to take that out of the system in order to kind of like say the metaverse and what we believe in is not anchored on a social media narrative, right? It's anchored on the human being being able to immerse himself in an alternate reality and all the potential benefits and potential risks that that brings with it. So in a sense, I see that some of the, uh, in a sense, negativity of bashing of the metaverse uh, idea that has come out from, in a sense, the failure of a social media, that could be a good thing because it re-centers us on perhaps what's the more important uh, conversation. Um, uh, again, the how compelling uh, it is to humanity to experience an alternate reality and acquire assets in an alternate reality and trade those assets and perhaps, you know, get financing for those assets and all the, in a sense, potential value uh, that, that comes. Uh, maybe something very quick around here. Many of our countries are dealing with uh, aging populations, right? And as people get more and more debilitated, um, the potential power of being able to kind of like restore your experiences from your youth or to experience yourself in it. I, I, I do find those things compelling. Uh, the idea that we could, in a sense, uh, experience uh, uh, sustainability-related initiatives in countries we wouldn't ordinarily visit uh, or take risks we ordinarily wouldn't take because, uh, in a sense, they're just too dangerous to try to do this in a physical context. But then having the option of doing this in alternate reality, again, I find that very compelling. So, so I, I perhaps like the idea that we have started to strip out some of the advertising stuff from, from the metaverse narrative and recenter the conversation on potentially what's important. And I think maybe the same could be true in a Web3 context, right? So you know, the, the first wave was highly speculative and based upon some perhaps naive, you know, token uh, yeah. systems, token designs and incentive systems. So, you know, maybe both in the social instance and, and the kind of financialized instance, we kind of needed to, to, to recenter, regroup. In some of your thinking, you, you kind of break out uh, into uh, things into three areas. You have immersion, delivery, and then digital assets in the context of business models. Could you could you talk us through that? Those three pillars, yeah. I guess, yeah. and then how they begin to interplay to allow new kinds of business models. So I gave some of that away already by you know what I said earlier. I think a lot of what represents the metaverse is not. Uh, in a sense, the secondary considerations of, you know, social media or just assets. I think the primary factor driving, in a sense, the compelling nature of the metaverse is the idea of immersion, right? And therefore, it seems to me that a content-driven immersive experience is potentially the most compelling uh, to a human being, right? Uh, because of all the things that I described, how, how, you know, perhaps in an aging population context, we need to think about uh, you know, how people could experience life uh, differently and so on and so forth. So you start from the perspective of what type of immersion content-driven experiences would be compelling to the largest possible number of human beings and for how long persistent alternate worlds have been around for a very long time. But you could equally say that somebody with a very strong intellectual property franchise, right? So I like to use the Star Wars example. I'm also a Star Wars fan. And imagine if actually people could experience a Star Wars universe in, uh, 
fully realize uh, uh, digital alternate reality and um, acquire a lightsaber or an action fighter, how cool would that be? And being able to pass that action fighter to your son, how cool would that be? <laughs> and, and I think that is what drives a lot uh, in relation to the idea of immersion, right? So content-driven uh, immersion from a human being. Uh, however, the reason why delivery is there is that that immersive experience has to be delivered to the human being in um, a reasonable way, in a way that is accessible to the human being, and not just in a sense accessible physically, but also accessible from a financial perspective, right? And I do think this is one of the barriers to, in a sense, the success of the metaverse, that I don't think that the technology has been miniaturized to an adequate level and is, in a sense, uh, usable by a reasonable human being, right? So there are how many billion of us, right? And how many people actually acquire the hardware resources and pay the money and have the bandwidth in order to experience these fully realized digital realities? So I think we're still a way off from mass-produced, fully democratized uh, delivery systems for that immersive content. Right? And I think this is one of the big drivers that perhaps is underestimated uh, in the conversations that, yes, uh, you might have 100,000 users, but that's not truly cool. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about billions of people in an alternate reality that are making these stories and developing these stories along. And I think that's the part that's cooler. Uh, do I think it'll come? Yeah, I think it's a question of time because it will be a function of somebody coming up with the immersive experiences and somebody coming up with the technology for delivery of those experiences at an appropriate price point in a very reasonably accessible way. And then I think we've got a lot of the building blocks that we need. The third building block is actually the idea of digital assets. Now, let me be really, really clear that I don't think we're just talking about Web3 digital assets because it is equally valid to say that all those digital assets could be stored on a database construct and just recorded accordingly. Uh, the point here is what ever successful alternate reality this is. In other words, the winner with the immersive experience and the winner with the delivery experience will get to choose what type of digital asset denomination that universe will be driven by. And if it's driven by blockchain and Web3, great. But if it's not driven by Web3 and, and because they so choose it that way, let's be open to that idea as well. Because who knows what is the correct way to do this? I think we all need to be slightly humble to say, let's preserve the conversations and not just push into one perspective. Nobody's got a monopoly on views, uh, me included. Let's just have those conversations and drive it on. But these three fundamental ideas that, that the metaverse as I understand it, or as I conceptualize it, uh, is driven by immersion, is driven by delivery, and is then supported by digital assets, acquisition, recording, transfer, financing, and so on. I think that's a decent way to look at it. It's sensible, right? I think, you know, you, you start with the experiences. Um, and to a degree, this is where you could argue the Web3 version of the open metaverse um, ha has got it wrong in its first instance. It started with the incentives. It started with the financialization and the experiences weren't good enough They um, to, to kind of draw audiences. They weren't sticky enough. And I think the point around delivery is, is really important too, because if we imagine that the metaverse is more than just entertainment, um, but that increasingly it is work, it is where we can carry out economic activity yeah. to have a hardware barrier 
um, that is too high means you are excluding a large percentage of the global population from participating in the economy, um, which you know obviously is just bad business. But it but it also will distort kind of distribution of wealth, perhaps even reinforce it in a way. All right, it stratifies society, and why why do we want that? So the idea of the metaverse is you can be anybody. So why build in inherent stratification? Um, and that kind of takes us into another area that I know you find very important, which is the kind of legal, ethical, and maybe even philosophical considerations around the metaverse. You know, we were just talking about financial inclusion, but I know a safe metaverse safety is important, and it's one I wrestle with as a father. So, you know, generally I bias towards permissionless systems. Yeah. That said, you know, until we have ways of curating those and, and, and making them safe, I have great concerns about what that means for uh, uh, children. But of course, you know, that extends to, 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 to everybody. At the same time, safety can feel like a moat. You know, if you look at what's happening with with uh, Facebook and Meta, you know, they will propose that their more closed environment is closed because it's safer. It also means that they can, you know, build a moat and, 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 and trap users and extract value. And we see analogous things in AI, right? With, um, with, the, with OpenAI now, you know, they've kind of, they've made their charge and now they're claiming, oh, wait a minute, you know, uh, now things are getting really scary. Let's bring up a regulatory moat so it's harder to play. And, and you know, we know that that is a tried and tested defense mechanism for, for an incumbent. So it's a really tricky one to navigate because on the one hand, I think everybody can understand the safety argument at the same time. Um, that can be that, that can be misappropriated, abused by by incumbents. Uh, so that's such a good conversation, and I honestly don't think we should try to jump into solutions straight away. I think maybe the approach, um, and I'll take a step back. This is probably very close to my day job, right? So the, now I'm speaking from a more professional context. Um, the idea of managing risk is that when you look at any particular proposition, opportunity, business, and so on and so forth, right? Is that you're trying to reasonably foresee what downsides will come from this. And those reasonably foreseeable downsides are things that we can put plans around. And I think the stage by that is actually, I think our lists of these four downsides are not necessarily comprehensive uh, in the sense that, let me just give you an example, right? So responsible use of data or privacy in the metaverse, right? Yeah, you can do a lot around just that topic alone. But I don't think it's just that topic alone. In the same way that, you know, kind of like safety alone is not necessarily just the topic. I think maybe what I would say is we need to spend a bit of time saying what are those reasonably foreseeable downsides. And I've got three buckets. For that. The first bucket is what I would call legal issues that we need to sort out in order to have a fully realized metaverse. Second bucket are kind of like the regulatory issues that we need to sort out in order to properly uh, realize metaverse and explain the difference between the two. And the third is the ethical or public policy considerations. The stage that we're at is probably in our best interests as a society, as an industry, to try to make sure those lists are as complete as we can. <laughs> and then we can pass it out the work. So for example, one of the really well-known problems in uh, DeFi and crypto is the idea of property on the blockchain. Your, what is your property? Does it fall into your insolvency estate? Uh, how do you transfer that property? 
how do you record an interest in respect of that property? And this has tied lawyers up in knots. And yes, there's been development on this. Uh, I think the UK has done a Royal Commission, something published, a Law Commission uh, publishing. But I think that's one jurisdiction's perspective, one systems of law perspective, right? The metaverse is going to be pretty borderless. Right? And all kinds of people around the world are going to want to say, how do I trust that I've got property in the metaverse and that property is something that I can, you know, uh, register and assert ownership rights over. Right? So I think that's one really, really big conversation uh, that we need to put into the list. So just an example. Uh, in the regulatory side, I already alluded to this. The metaverse is going to be borderless. So we do need ways of thinking about how we um, regulate businesses in the metaverse, right? Uh, the economic models that will come on this. What type of licensing regime do we want? Conduct rules do we want? what type of capital requirements that we want, a lot of stuff that cryptos are kind of like navigating through uh, as we speak with constructs like Nika and you know, the Hong Kong SFC proposals. And anticipating these things is, in my view, entirely consistent with trying to design for a responsible or a safe metaverse. Because if you don't have these things on your checklist, then you're missing a trick. And then lastly, the concept that you introduced, right, which is ethical considerations. So I threw a few things in there, right? So the idea of safety, I think it's entirely appropriate. It's probably correlated to this idea, and we know this from computer games already, right? We know this. People don't play computer games just to have fun in a computer game. There are some people in computer games who make it their life's mission to make everyone else's life in the computer game as miserable as possible. And the phenomenon is well understood. It's called griefing. Trying to say that it's a foreseeable risk of a metaverse, that people won't just experience the metaverse, but will make it their life's work to make other people's lives as miserable as possible. That's everything we know. And we've seen this in some of the early iterations of the social media-driven metaverses. So let's design for that. Uh, I'll throw one more in, social isolation. So we know this in Japan. In a sense, people get so engaged in the metaverse or in the alternate reality that they just isolate themselves from society. They just function in the physical world by eating and sleeping and, and you know performing bodily functions. But otherwise, their entire life's existence is defined by the metaverse. So what's the impact on population? What's the impact on economy? What's the impact on the idea of employment, work? And all that I think we need to think through. So, so Jimmy, I'm making a plea here that I feel that the people who care about the metaverse have also got to care about the downside risks from the metaverse and to start working together and collaborating on making sure that these lists and these buckets are reasonably comprehensive. Let's, use, let's do the best job we can to try to design for a responsible, safe metaverse. Uh, so end of pitch, but that's how I feel about this. I'm really, really, you can tell, I'm really, really passionate about it. Yeah, well, look, I mean, there's some really interesting concepts there. And I think, you know, if you imagine that increasingly the metaverse will inform, interact with society at large, the economy at large, as you say, the, these kind of drivers of um, behaviors in aggregate, uh, the impact on society it opens up a, ca a can of worms, right? There's a lot of things to think through. And of course, largely we're talking about emergent systems, um, very complex emergent systems. We're not talking about a single technology. So we're not just talking about VR, you know, we're talking about VR converging with AI and agent-based systems converging with, you know, permissionless uh, digital asset marketplaces for peer-to-peer -peer transactions. There's 
so so much complexity uh, at play it's almost impossible to to predict the direction of travel at the same time i guess there are some human truths you know we are still as humans relatively unchanged um as as the agents that there's the population um and so uh, it might not be so difficult to predict uh how, how we might interact as you say especially when we have um a few decades now of looking at how the, the impact of gaming the impact of social media in a, in a 2d sense um yeah. what might happen when that when that gets more immersive you know I, I think on the one hand we we i propose the web 3 version of the metaverse can fix the web 2 problems you know that's why we use the web 3 moniker it, it allows for this evolution of the web it fixes uh, the ills of um of web 2 and privacy and identity and as you say ownership and distribution of value but it's going to bring its own problems and challenges right and you know i'm old enough now to have been through uh, Web two when I was kind of coming into in, into the beginnings of my career in my twenties and we thought social media was going to only do good right we were going to disintermediate news uh, we could have direct access to truth all these revolutions were happening around the world and and everything was going to be better and actually you could argue on the one hand worse it's made many benefits we're now in a truth vacuum where we can't trust anything or anyone and 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 now we've got ai coming along which is just going to confuse us even more with deep fakes and stuff so uh, you have to be cognizant that with every evolution of the web whilst it may fix certain things it brings its own own issues right yeah and, and if i may just double down on the point right so then you take social media what do we have we've got surveillance capitalism we've got echo chambers we've got disinformation we've got troll farms we've got bot farms there okay. the thing that i'm propositioning here right is 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 if we look at the metaverse, what can we foresee? So at the advent of social media, I mean, how many people like me were kind of like drawing up these lists and what was foreseeable? And it's probably arguable that the monetization models around social media business, right? You could have foreseen survey and you could have potentially done something. You may not have, in a sense, realized that echo chambers <laughs> would have happened, right? So in a sense, I criticize when, in a sense, we could have foreseen it and we didn't do anything. And then my reaction becomes... Oh, come on, guys, let's try better next time, right? Now, if we couldn't have foreseen something, then I don't really fault anybody, right? But that's the point of trying to draw up these lists. So later on, you can then say, you know what? We could have spotted that and let's let's try better next time. Or we did spot that and, you know, thank goodness it didn't happen because we knew that was going to happen. I mean, I'm a natural optimist. Um, you know, you have to be if you're working, if you're investing in in founders at, at pre-seed seed stage. <laughs> you, you know, you might as well pack pack up and go home. But I'm optimistic in the sense that, so on the one hand, one of the challenges of this space is it, the velocity of innovation. As I said, you've got all these convergent technologies. You know, the human brain doesn't scale um, at the same rate that innovation is uh, kind of reinforcing itself. And so at an individual level, it, it can be quite overwhelming. But one of the benefits to that velocity is I think the gap, the time between Web 2 and Web 3 or Web 3 and Web 4 is going to shrink over the course of a lifetime. And so, you know, people that have been around a little while may experience 
one, two, three, even three iterations of the web. And, and they'll remember, they'll have that burnt into their synapses that, well, actually, you know, Web3 didn't turn out to be, um, you know, all roses. And actually, what, what learnings can we take into Web4, whatever, whatever that might look at? So I want to kind of just close off on, um, kind of bring it back now to, to kind of your role at, at, at DBS. So, you know, DBS is known to be highly innovative organization, especially in a digital context. You know, you could argue you're sat in the center or one of the centers of uh, the Web3 ecosystem. Uh, you know, your role is to, well, an element of your role is to help that organization innovate at the edge of, of technologies um, and manage associated risks. How the hell do you do that? Kind of like you extrapolate from what you think the business is going to be, right? So in a sense, um, you you kind of can already reasonably conclude, right, that metaverse-driven business models will represent economies, right, uh, driven by the economic characteristics of those respective metaverses. How many assets are um, uh, created, how many assets are destroyed, how many assets are consumed, how many assets are traded. All these are, in a sense, the economic characteristics of that particular. Second insight um, it's not just going to be one metaverse. It's not like, you know, one metaverse to rule them all is going to be the narrative. There's going to be many different iterations. Uh, we also know this from computer games. Computer games have a shelf life. So in the sense that after a while, people say, no, that's not cool anymore, or, you know, that's boring, or a better game comes along, and the whole user base kind of like migrates. It is reasonably foreseeable that we have a future of multiple metaverses. Right? And so I think when you extrapolate from the insights of what a metaverse looks like, its economic characteristics, and from the insight that you get multiple metaverses interacting with each other, you then actually have a very fascinating parallel with the real world. Currencies in different jurisdictions interact with each other. Economies in the world interact with each other. And there is where you have banking. You have banking in a sense of loans against one asset. For another asset, you have foreign exchange transactions that take place between one currency and another currency. And isn't it reasonably foreseeable that when you have a multiverse of metaverses, that there is going to be demand for financial intermediation? Now, some of this is clearly going to be achieved by Web3 rails, right? So that's why DBS is spending quite a lot of time on the infrastructure for, in a sense, intermediating on and off ramps with fiat and also intermediating flows between uh, multiple different types of digital assets. Uh, we're quite public in terms of all the activity that we've put into this reasonably foreseeable future. But it arguably goes even further than that. Because then, when all these digital assets kind of like interact with each other, they're still interacting because the human beings interacting in a digital reality, but also existing in the physical reality. And so the human beings going to have needs and wants in a physical reality, and also going to have needs and wants in the digital reality. And somebody's got to help to bridge that, right? And that bridge can be achieved by technical interoperability. And that's a lot of conversations about that. But I argue we also bridge it by economic interoperability. And for economic interoperability, you must be able to price an asset in one metaverse and price it in another metaverse and price it in a physical reality in the US dollar, for example, and actually intermediate all that, trade it, hedge it, just to use financial terms, risk manage it, warehouse it, lend against it, take security on it, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And so that future, I feel, is reasonably foreseeable. It's extrapolatable. 
from what we have today. And if you think that the metaverses will come to pass and you can extract it from those metaverses into this scenario, then yeah, put some work into <laughs> uh, building the muscles for that future when it happens. Put in the work to understand the infrastructure, to understand technical interoperability and to start building the muscles for economic interoperability. That's the way you kind of like support that future, right? I've said a lot there, but you know, I, I think a lot of this is in our white paper as well. But that's that's what I that's what I think is feasible, right? And legal. No, look, I think that's I think that's I think that's great framing, um, and I think you know, reassuring actually to to hear how an organization is uh, like yours is, is thinking about that. Well, look, I mean, we we knew uh, you'd be a great guest. That's why we invited you on the show. Um, I, I think if, if anything, your, your title is maybe deceiving. Um, I don't I don't think people would look at your title on face value and, and think that we would have had uh, th- this kind of conversation. So that that's great great to see. Um, you, we've referenced this white paper, um, but we we haven't mentioned its name. We haven't mentioned how people can find it. Could you maybe give us a bit more information there? I think the best thing to do is for us to kind of maybe send you a, a link to it. Uh, yes. It's basically an argument around why we need to take a human-centered view. Don't just look at the business models. Don't just look at the, you know, the in a sense, how you would construct an investment opportunity around this. Look at how a human being would exist in the metaverse, what he wants, right? And that will speak to the, to the immersion thesis. Then look at how the human being wants to use the metaverse, right? And that will speak to the delivery uh, thesis. And then the digital assets thesis and the financial interoperability thesis uh, will come from that as well. So if we took a human-centric lens on this thing, we know this from tech, customer obsession, right? So so who's your customers in the metaverse? These human beings are going to exist there, right? Taking that human centricity and then thinking through the implications. That's the, that's the underlying thing. Right? So, so the paper is basically, you know, the case for a human-centered metaverse. Very good. Well, look, we'll make sure we put it in the footnotes. Thanks for coming on. You've been a great guest. I will be out in Singapore. Uh, I think it's for 2049, Singapore 2049 in September. Uh-huh. Hopefully we, we get to meet IRL there. But thanks for coming on the show. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. 